Welcome to Tyranny Today. We are not yet 100% sure if Emperor Xi will really grace with his presence the city of San Francis of Assisi, an important 13th century Catholic saint that Xi Jinping would probably prefer not to have ever existed. Often hailed as the first high-profile environmentalist, St. Francis um, is an unlikely host for an emperor of a communist nation that adds 100 gigawatts of new coal power every year. In other words, in just two years, communist China adds as much coal power as the U.S. has in total, 200 gigawatts, and more than all of Europe has in total, 188 gigawatts. So, let us ask ourselves, why it's a good idea to stroke this sooty panda. With Kurt Campbell's uh, recent elevation from our Asian Tsar to Deputy Secretary of State, the timing for this question is pretty good. After all, 2023 has been marked by a string of America's surprising diplomatic successes in the Pacific. Remember that in the context of conflict, America's successes are China's defeats. Now, what were these uh, successes or breakthroughs? Well, certainly the groundbreaking trilateral Camp David agreement between Tokyo, Seoul, and Washington, in which the two Asian countries recognized their assured threats from North Korea, China, and Russia, as well as their common interests and intertwined security. All that despite China's consistent campaign of anti-Japanese disinformation in South Korea's social media. Remarkably, these two North Asian heavyweights are now displacing China from the Philippines, where Tokyo and Seoul have engaged in joint financing of infrastructure, following the failure of some Chinese projects. And it is precisely the Philippines that constitute America's second great success in the region, with the old military bases becoming once again available to the U.S. armed forces. Japan, for which the Bashi Channel, separating Luzon from Taiwan, is absolutely vital as a conduit for trade, has also strengthened its military cooperation with Manila. The third breakthrough in Asia was the announcement of comprehensive strategic partnership between the U.S. and its erstwhile foe, Vietnam. What was surprising here was the sudden jump from a comprehensive relationship in the past to comprehensive strategic relationship without passing through the simply strategic stage. As a result, Vietnam hopes to purchase F-16 fighter jets, but the country's strategy is actually omnivectoral, and similar partnerships have been signed with other countries, including China. Now, this new move by Hanoi injects a bit of equidistance between Vietnam-China and Vietnam-US relations, which certainly did not please Beijing. We know that because immediately, Vietnamese exports to China were stopped at the Chinese border. To these successes, we should also add further strengthening of AUKUS alliance between the UK, Australia, and the US, as well as progress on Quad partnership between Japan, India, Australia, and the US. As I stated two weeks ago, Indonesia remains in play. Beijing rolled out a red carpet for Jokowi, the president of Indonesia, two weeks ago on the occasion of the BRICS event, and Joe Biden is expected to do the same at APAC, illustrating two facts. One, that Southeast Asia has long been living in a bipolar reality, 
and secondly, that fence sitting has been paying off thus far. Although Indonesia has so far balked at uh, BRICS participation, its dependence on capital inflows from China has reached worrisome levels. So having left the panda with a bloody nose in 2023, why do we need to stroke it so carefully ahead of 2024? Well, it's because the upcoming year is full of vulnerabilities, with a hot war between the superpowers still a possibility. And it's democracy, or at least democratic mechanisms, that will inject additional instability into the already wobbly picture. First, in mid-January, we'll have a presidential election in Taiwan. The candidate of the ruling party, DPP, uh, William Lai, or Lai Qingde, has strong lead over his rivals. There is still an outside chance that the rather unpopular Guomindang candidate, Hou Youyi, as well as Ke um, Wenzhe from centrist Taiwan People's Party, reach a deal to merge their tickets. Ke Wenzhe is currently second to 23% of vote intentions, while KMT's Hou clears some 20%. They have two weeks to reach an agreement. Communist China's propaganda has been active around the world painting the DPP's candidate, William Lai, as a separatist, which is basically true of 98% of Taiwanese nationals, given that only a paltry 2% have any intentions to be ruled by communists from Beijing. On the DPP's ticket, it is likely that Lai Qingde gains a high-profile running mate, or rather a running gull, Xiao Meiqin, or Xiao Bikin, who's um, the country's current ambassador to the United States. Xiao became as um, quite a character. She's of mixed Taiwanese-American origin, grew up in Japan, and is therefore tetralingual, speaking Native American English, fluent Taiwanese, fluent Japanese, and fluent Mandarin Chinese. She has done a great job for the world peace during her stint in Washington, and she's very popular in U.S. Congress. During the excesses of the failed wolf-warrior diplomacy that Beijing rolled out with the advent of COVID, Xiao Bikim responded with a much more graceful cat-warrior communication strategy. Both she and President Tsai Ing-wen are, by the way, known to be cat lovers. During DPP's presidential candidate Lai Qingde's recent visit to the United States, the two, candidate Lai Qingde and Ambassador Xiao Bikim, went to a baseball game donning Yankee shirts emblazoned with their names and the numbers, number one for Lai Qingde and number 11 for Ambassador Xia. Uh, since Lai Qingde has little experience in American politics, her presence on the ticket would be of great value to Taiwan's diplomatic interests in the next several years, should DPP win the election, of course. The second source of instability will originate from a country that still holds mechanistic electoral routine, but uh, is not often celebrated for its democracy. And that's Russia, which is planning to celebrate Vladimir Putin's eternal glory in his re-election next March. Now, this farce actually matters to us, and it matters to Ukraine. Unlike typical fascist governments that thrive on social mobilization, Putin's kleptocratic revisionism requires quite the opposite. That is, complete social demobilization. And so, there is a risk that the participation in the election may be on the low side. Uh, more importantly, analysts fear that Putin's anticipated victory will be followed by general military mobilization. Already this year, 
Russian generals bragged about their success in mobilizing 300,000 conscripts and reservists that were sent into the grinders of Bakhmut or, more recently, Advivka. But even larger numbers could be necessary in the attrition war of 2024. Following the deal between Moscow and Pyongyang, Russia certainly now has gained access to additional artillery rounds. Apparently, already half a million of North Korean rounds have reached Moscow's depots. Now, depending on how intense the shelling will be, it will last either 10 days, if the Russian troops saturate the front line as in 2022, or for 50 days, if they continue the current level of fire of about 10,000 rounds per day. And this is a problem, because Ukraine only uses about 6,000 rounds per day. An injection of half a million is important for Russia, as the country produces only 2 million rounds in a year. But that is already more than the US and Europe together. The US still only makes about 1.2 million per year, and Europe about 300,000. Europe is now promising a shipment of 1 million rounds to Ukraine, so let's see how that goes. All of this could still be insufficient if a post-election Russia throws up hundreds of thousands of fresh troops. Ukraine's General Zaluzhny, in a recent article in The Economist, warned that matching headcount for the needs of Ukrainian armed forces is becoming a problem. Given the odds, it is not clear whether Russia will be willing to negotiate, or, conversely, will launch a second attempt to capture Kiev. In the context of a rift between Ukrainian politics and Ukrainian armed forces, that would be a catastrophic scenario. It would be a disaster for NATO, with Ukraine durably destabilized and uninvestable, while Russia, China, and North Korea would all be even more emboldened. Then we have another election-related question mark, because Ukraine, too, should hold presidential elections in March. But how to organize such an election? Prior to the war, there were 32 million voters in Ukraine. Some 8 million of them are now somewhere in the West. Additionally, 7 million Ukrainians are under Russian occupation, where voting would be impossible. The situation in these areas is unstable, although I heard interesting reports about greedy Russians from St. Petersburg already buying seafront properties on the outskirts of Mariupol. Then there are some 2 million Ukrainians displaced within Russia proper. So, does it make sense to hold an election? Ukraine's constitution actually forbids organizing a poll during a martial law. But delaying the elections indefinitely may also sap the legitimacy of President Zelensky. Maybe the imperative of strengthening the civic institutions should take precedence over the electoral calendar. It is hard to say, but the issue will definitely strain the country's internal politics at a wrong time. And the time is certainly wrong, especially later in the year, as we will also have the election here in the United States. And that potentially threatens our domestic system with a potential crisis of legitimacy. The recent Republican debate parading various candidates, was boycotted by a frontrunner who is currently busy bad-mouthing the due process at various courtrooms. But the debate was interesting nonetheless, if anything, because Nikki Haley's rising numbers and her scathing criticism of Mr. Ramaswamy, who she rightly described as a Russian and Chinese stooge. Nikki Haley is also trying to strike a middle ground over the issue that has cost the GOP many votes among younger women, and that's obviously abortion. But if the GOP continues to veer further away from its conservative roots and towards the populist right, we might end up with a constitutional crisis, with every single legal challenge escalated to the Supreme Court level. This is in a country where politicians, corrupted by the campaign financing system, 
have long decided to abandon any negotiating solutions and throw every single political hot potato to the courts. The culture of negotiation and compromise has wilted really badly and many lawmakers are now mere peacocks strutting through the social media like teenage influencers seeking to mesmerize the numbed, unencephalic audience with yet another TikTok pirouette. America's 2024 indecision will be a balm for Putin's and Xi Jinping's aging hearts, not least because it is coinciding this time with um, deep trouble surrounding the U.S. budget. High interest rates mean that the U.S. Treasury may find it increasingly challenging to finance its deficit, and it's at a time when our allies in Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan badly need help. This was not much of a problem until now. Despite a growing federal debt as a percentage of the GDP, from 30% in the year 2000 to 100% now, the costs of servicing this debt were capped at around one and a quarter or one and a half percent of GDP. But now, with high interest rates, they are fast approaching 2%. Even if this debt rose no further relative to the size of the economy, by 2030, higher borrowing costs are set to add 2% of GDP to debt payments annually. If that had been the case last year, the Treasury would have had to pay an extra $550 billion to bondholders, which is something like 10 times the amount of security assistance that the U.S. has funneled to Ukraine so far. And that's not all. The primary treasury market is uh, staring at the risk that the Bank of Japan's delicate approach to the yen's depreciation so far is reversed, or the Japanese yield curve control is relaxed, causing a stampede of Japanese capital away from the U.S. dollar to the Japanese yen. That would be simply catastrophic for the U.S. interest rates, not to mention the confidence in our system. And I'm saying this during a week of another plausible government shutdown here. Plausible because the new House Speaker is a neophyte with zero experience handling such negotiations. Last time it happened, back in 2018, the country immediately lost $3 billion. These days, given the global conflict, it's like handing this check to our adversaries in East Asia, in Eastern Europe or in the Middle East. Well done. So, 2024 will be a year of living very, very dangerously. Can we somehow pet the panda and gain time to rebuild our defenses? And if we do, how can we best use this time? There is so much to do. Starting with expediting the supplementary budget with aid to the three critically exposed allies, Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan then expanding weapon and munitions manufacturing across all the Western producing centers, then encouraging a new, bold leadership in Israel to redefine the victory in the anti-Hamas war as the beginning of a road towards a Palestinian solution that would undermine the Iranian regime's chief reason to be, then providing Ukraine with long-range munitions and squadrons of F-16s, which are planned for next spring, and more comprehensive drone coverage than so far then accelerating the creation of a two-speed European Union that would enshrine majority voting and facilitate Ukraine's economic integration into the bloc. Then training more than just two battalions of Taiwanese ground troops on American soil. Then investing radically in offensive cyber activities to break the great internet walls and shift the revisionist narrative by turning it against the dictatorial regimes of Beijing, Moscow, Tehran and Pyongyang then deepening our defense cooperation between South Korea and Japan, integrating a new defense strategy in Poland and strengthening direct defense cooperation between the Nordic countries and the southern shore of the Baltic Sea, 
bolstering direct military cooperation within the Quad, accelerating deployment of satellite swarms on the low-level orbit, recovering the lost ground around Africa, re-engineering the Abraham Accords, aiding insurgent in Burma, re-democratizing Venezuela, keeping Belarus independent, flipping Indonesia, protecting Morocco, saving Armenia, and most importantly, the single most difficult task, getting our house in order. We can't pull off all of this. So, in the meantime, let's play for time and stroke some panda. Remember, Barack Obama met with Xi Jinping on seven occasions, including two visits to Beijing by the US president. Trump met with him on five occasions, including one trip to Beijing. While the current US president and Xi Jinping have met only once in person since Biden took office and neither visited each other's capitals. So this is the last chance, before the tectonic year 2024. What's in it for the Chinese dictator? Well, it's all about the spectacle. To be beamed back home and project the image of a global leader whose enlightened presence Americans grovel for so badly. That relentless focus of the Chinese Sherpas on the spectacle side of the event, rather than the substance of the meeting with Biden, is the clearest picture yet that after the economic, diplomatic, and personnel upheavals of the last two years, Xi Jinping's position at home is a lot weaker than we typically assume. Okay, let us now return to the topic of spheres of influence, which I broached last week, speaking about Iran's case. Uh, just to recap, Iran, as a revisionist power, is able to project power despite its fractured economy by exploiting various asymmetries in the region and by using its proxies. Most of its military budget, channeled through the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, is destined precisely for those proxies in Iraq, in Lebanon, and in Yemen. By comparison, the regular conventional army, Artesh, remains rather underfunded and poorly positioned to defend the homeland. This is yet another argument against the oft-repeated dogma that Iran is somehow seeking a conventional regional conflagration. It would probably mean the end of this regime as we know it, and the mullahs are just a little too astute to make such a mistake. And so, maintaining a sphere of influence is their way to cater to Iranians' mental maps and keep potential aggressors at bay, far away from Iran's shores. This is geographically possible because Iran does not share borders with any of its implacable foes, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Israel, or the United States. We use this configuration as an archetype of the sphere of influence. Let us now have a look at two other terms, the sphere of control and the zone of influence. They are not mutually exchangeable. So what is a sphere of control? I think the best example would be what Soviet Union maintained across Eastern Europe between 1945 and 1991, exercising full political control through local proxies supported by direct military presence. This often means territorial integration, as in the case of the Baltic countries after the Second World War. But it could be also via some hybrid security arrangement and political plus economic dominance. Some of these aspects are present in a sphere of influence, but others go much further. Another good example of a sphere of control was the 1904 Teddy Roosevelt Corollary, a stronger version of the by then eight-decade-old Monroe Doctrine. Roosevelt's version was aimed at preventing European gunboat diplomacy in America's backyard. Several anti-communist hiccups, much later, occurred in the region, 
giving a taste of this Roosevelt's dogma, whether the 1965 intervention in the Dominican Republic or later in 1984 in Nicaragua and 1988 in Panama. Today's Russia is unable to fully re-establish the sphere of control that Soviets enjoyed in Eastern Europe, but it's certainly intent on rebuilding a sphere of influence, as demanded by Sergei Lavrov in December 2021 ultimatum. It's a question of degree. According to that ultimatum of 2021, Ukraine would be incorporated fully into Russia's sphere of control, but countries such as uh, the Baltic countries or Poland would be part of Russia's sphere of influence. Already in the 1990s, Boris Yeltsin's liberal foreign minister, Andrei Kozirev, urged the international respect of the Russian sphere of influence, and over a decade later, in 2008, Dmitry Medvedev defined Russia's privileged interests, which gave Russia special rights to intervene, for example, in Georgia. Such a sphere of influence also involves passing extraterritorial laws, for example, to protect ethnic Russians. Again, a theme that is reminiscent of Iranian responsibility to protect its co-religionists, as we discussed last week. That effort of extraterritorial protection has, by the way, a long history in Russia's um, geopolitical thought. In the first half of the 19th century, Tsarist Russia formulated a doctrine according to which it would take responsibility for the protection of Christian minorities across the Ottoman Empire, whether Greek, Armenian, or other Orthodox groups. Of course, the real thrust of such claims was geopolitical, given Russia's appetite for the control of access to Black Sea. But this interference in Turkish affairs was one of the reasons for Russia's debacle in the Crimean War. If we understand now the spheres of influence and the spheres of control and how they differ, what are then zones of influence? This is a different form of control, exercise over a territory which may even notionally be under control of other polities. How? Well, because zones of influence do not obsess about the stock, such as the stock of a territory, but rather about the flow, the flow of goods, capital, and people. It's by controlling checkpoints along the flow corridor, they exercise strong influence over the area and leverage this control for a gain, often offering public goods such as security or logistics in exchange for profit. Zones of influence can be controlled by state actors that do not attempt to build an empire in the sense of structured administration or, or dominant military, but which control flows by taxing them and providing services necessary to facilitate such flows. In the Middle East, the classical example of such a zone of influence was the Nabataean state in Arabia. Although the core kingdom was in what is now Jordan and northern Saudi Arabia, its influence extended far beyond, into Syria, into Sinai, into Rome. Hence the classical-looking facades that I remember admiring in Petra in Jordan at the very beginning of the Syrian war. Nabataeans taxed the trade across the region, but their knowledge of water resources, of desert strongholds, the technology they mastered for boat maintenance and their trade financing skills, all helped to grease the wheels of commerce. More importantly, they did in their caravanserais what the Taiwanese do these days with batteries for electric bikes. They set up swapping stations to speed up the traffic across the territory. Except that back then, what was swapped was not a fresh-loaded electric battery, but a fresh and yet-to-be-loaded camel. Such a zone of influence, which focuses on the flow, does not have to be in conflict with another empire's sphere of control. Why? Because the sphere of control is mostly about the stock first, and flow only second. 
Remember that most wars break out between the polities that care about the same thing, how to carve out the available slices of stock. Think about Mongolia versus China, Turkey versus Persia, France versus Russia, or Germany versus Russia. All continental powers in search of more assets. When a power controlling the flow clashes with a power obsessed about the stocks, it is possible to avoid the worst. That's what Kissinger apparently understood in the early 1970s. He refused to hold detente and disarmament hostage to the Soviet Union's appalling human rights records, even after Brezhnev's intervention in Czechoslovakia. U.S.-Soviet summits under Nixon offered tacit acceptance of the Soviet geographic dominance over its sphere of control. Once the U.S. decided not to needle the USSR over that sphere of control, Washington could focus on its worldwide zone of capitalistic influence. By 1972, Kissinger and Gromyko, Soviet foreign minister, established clear rules of conduct, agreeing to principles of sovereignty, equality, non-interference, and mutual advantage. The rivalry was giving the limits, and priority was giving to the security interests of the two superpowers, which stayed in place until the Reagan era. Looking at it from the perspective of the 1980s, it could look almost like appeasement or alternatively an attempt to gain time and catch up with the Soviet conventional military superiority. But in the context of respective areas of influence, the U.S. was content to sanction that division in the 1975 Helsinki Final Act and thus trade the territory de facto controlled by Moscow, that is, stock, for America's freedom to control its zone of influence in the global capitalist system, that is, flows, which was still about two-thirds of the known universe at that time. This is a good example of the case where, when one dominant power cares about stocks, such as a stock of territory, while the other is more interested in the flows, the two are not necessarily destined for a clash. In a less remembered example of a similar form of competition that didn't need to transmute into an open, hot conflict, we can take the late 19th century race to grab pieces of uh, East Africa. While Britain, a maritime power, was trying to control the flows, and by the late 1880s established a zone of influence around Zanzibar and Pemba Islands, German Deutsch-Ostafrikanische Gesellschaft, DOAG, which was led by Karl Peters, successfully managed to control Tanganyika, or what is today uh, the mainland part of Tanzania. In 1890, Germany and Britain agreed on the division of spoils, with the former establishing a direct colony on the mainland, while Britain setting up a maritime post on the islands. The interests of stock and flow, sphere of control versus zone of influence, did not have to clash, at least not just yet. The clash would come later, when Germany began to seriously challenge Britain on the sea. So who else is exploring a flow-focused zone of influence in the Middle East today? A good example is Qatar. It has long positioned its natural gas wealth to propel it as a geostrategic go-between, hosting U.S. and Turkish military bases, wielding $475 billion in its sovereign wealth fund and $824 billion in assets overseas. Qatar wants to be indispensable. It's not only the flow of natural gas and capital. It's also an information hub with its control of Al Jazeera TV station. And increasingly, it offers services to facilitate the flow of liberated hostages. And Qatar now has a bit of a track record. It helped mediate the release of American prisoners from Iran, and it helped negotiate the release of Ukrainian children abducted by Russia. And now it has helped release some hostages in Gaza. It's all unfinished business. 
In the first batch, only four Ukrainian children were freed from the forced adoption by Russia, leaving 18,996 to be yet liberated. And we have still over 240 hostages in the Gazan hell, plus some persons that remain unaccounted for. Hamas had opened a political office in Qatar more than a decade ago in coordination with the U.S. after Washington requested a channel to communicate with the group. Okay, let us have a look at two other examples of a zone of influence. One area that is slowly evolving from what used to be uh, global commons into a zone of influence is the Arctic. Russia considers the Arctic its zone of influence, not least because its most important nuclear assets are stationed there since the first Cold War. And it was from here that um, submarine-launched ballistic missiles could be most easily sent towards the United States. But given the climate change, the region is increasingly opening up to flows, and as such, it is potentially more amenable for a competition over the control of these flows. There are two routes here. The Western Passage, that Canada, with its 55,000 islands, has long considered its domestic waters. And then there is the Northern Sea Route, Arctic waters that Moscow claims for exclusivity. But Russia is not alone there. China, which declares itself to be a near-Arctic state, has invested $90 billion into gas and mineral projects in the Russian Arctic. The two dictatorships have even discussed creating the so-called Polar Silk Road, which is a bit of an oxymoron since um, silkworms need at least 80 degrees Fahrenheit for development and would not survive below 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Arctic temperatures never even reach such levels, even with the climate change, to which both China and Russia have greatly contributed. Russia, which makes up 40% of the Arctic, is pulling the near-Arctic China to bolster its position vis-à-vis -vis the West. China needs the Arctic to bypass the Malacca Strait, especially now that its plans to build a $7.3 billion port on Madai Island in Burma and thus create an overland alternative to Malacca, have been thrown into a disarray due to the deteriorating security situation in Burma. Last March, Russia, deprived of Western investment, agreed with China to establish a joint umbrella organization for traffic along the northern sea route. In April, a bilateral Arctic maritime agreement was signed by the FSB, Federal Security Bureau of Russia, with Chinese Coast Guard. This route is still seasonal, but since July, a regular Chinese container line service started between St. Petersburg and Shanghai, and Russia made its first crude oil shipments to Asia using this route. Russia's state-owned nuclear services company Rosatom grants foreign ships traffic permits and offers nuclear icebreaker assistance. Remember that Russia is the only country that builds nuclear icebreakers. Refueling with uh, diesel is simply not practical in ice pack conditions that require a lot of power, like those camels for Arabs and yaks for the caravans on the Tibetan plateau. The nuclear icebreakers are the workhorses of strategic flow control in the high north. Why is the issue gaining so much prominence now? Well, the seven western members of the main regional body, the Arctic Council, that includes Norway, Greenland-slash-Denmark, Canada, the US, Iceland, Sweden, and Finland. Well, these countries stopped cooperating with Russia after Moscow's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year. So ice can be physically melting in the high north, but the ice age is coming back to Arctic cooperation. The era of Arctic exceptionalism when the polar region was insulated from tensions elsewhere is now gone. This new ice age offers a sweet revenge for China. 
Several years ago, Chinese state-owned companies attempted to build airports in Greenland, but were stopped in 2019 after the U.S. urged Copenhagen to counter these plans. The establishment of Russian zone of influence is not only about some benign issues such as, say, protection of polar bears or arctic foxes. Rather, it directly affects undersea domain warfare, where energy or communication flows are vulnerable to attacks. On October 7th, a vessel fresh from stopover in the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad in the Baltic Sea sailed towards the Finnish-Estonian connector pipeline and two fiber-optic undersea cables that link Estonia with Finland and Sweden. These connections were subsequently severed. What was this vessel? It was a Hong Kong-registered new new polar bear, which seemingly in tandem with Russia's Rosatom flots Sev Morput had steamed over all the three sides at the times of the ruptures, as revealed by automatic identification system. This would be the first time that Chinese assets had attacked directly NATO nations' critical infrastructure in Europe. On October 25th, the same container ship left the northern Russian port of Arkhangelsk, setting sail for Arctic waters, where it's escorted by a Russian state-owned icebreaker and is sailing eastward along the North Siberian coast towards the Bering Strait and then over to Pacific waters. And here is yet another example of an attempted zone of influence where the control of flows plays a key role. Have you thought about the composition of the expanded BRICS club? What was peculiar about the cooptation of, say, Egypt, Ethiopia or Argentina? Well, they do not fit the picture. When Jim O'Neill from Goldman Sachs came up with the original acronym BRICS over two decades ago, he set two conditions for the countries to be included in the grouping. They had to be large, very large, and they had to be fast-growing. Ethiopia is clearly on the pathway to become large, given its demographics, and if it remains one country, it could get there. But it's not quite in the same category as Brazil or India. And growth prospects for Egypt or Argentina are rather, let's say, paltry. So let's leave these three misfits aside and instead focus on three other new BRICS members from the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Iran. Together with Russia, which is already a BRICS member, these four countries represent four out of the world's six largest oil producers. And BRICS also involves some of the biggest oil importers, that is China and India. There is nothing that a sanction-wary Beijing would love more than to shift some settlement of oil transactions away from the dollar and towards other currencies, with a potential knock-on effect on the share of the dollar in international trade and global foreign exchange reserves. Coming at a time, as mentioned before, of U.S. Treasury's increased problems in servicing its debt, any potential loss of demand for the U.S. paper could lead to a tectonic shift in the global power. Of course, under sanctions, Russia is already selling oil to China for renminbi, and Brazil President Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva has also called on the bloc to come up with an alternative to the dollar. What is still preventing BRICS from becoming a zone of flow control for China? It's the factoid that Saudi Arabia and the UAE have currency pegs with the greenback, and therefore need dollar reserves to back them. Iran may suffer under sanctions, but would much rather get paid in dollars, not some Esperanto currency. For now, the markets are still on the side of America's economic petrol legacy. Any idea of a single BRICS currency with a unified monetary policy looks um, highly unlikely, given that 
Brazil is cutting interest rates currently. Russia is raising them aggressively. China is mired in deflation, while Iran's inflation is so bad that Rial's exchange rate is now somewhere between 40,000 to 400,000 to the dollar, depending on what you're allowed to do with that currency. And with their USD pegs, the UAE and Saudi Arabia have to mimic whatever the US Federal Reserve does. If the European Central Bank has a problem herding its German and Italian cats into one currency pool, then think about the similar task for the BRICS. So BRICS is probably a bridge too far for Beijing to transform the grouping into a zone of anti-American influence that could go beyond some empty sloganeering. Three of BRICS Plus members, that is New Delhi, Riyadh and Abu Dhabi, even signed a memorandum of understanding with the US and Europe to establish an economic corridor that is designed to compete with China's Belt and Road Initiative. Whether this will survive the Israel-Hamas war is quite another matter. Thank you for listening. Let's meet again next week.